When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you, have we talked about this? Do you know what the last uh, uh, American movie released on VHS was? No. Uh, I'm going to guess it's a history of violence. Good guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I might have known it was something you had something to do. <laughs> I have one framed on my wall. You mean because I kill mediums? A, <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, uh, Congratulations uh, on killing VHS. Yes. Well, they brought it back now, so I don't. Yeah, along with vinyl. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but vinyl's not ironic. Well, you know, VHS is, no one's bringing back VHS because it looks or sounds better. No, and also, you know, the, the oxidation comes off. So right. it's, it's a, not exactly an archival medium. Yeah, but I, I, do, <laughs> I do get nostalgic for those, the tracking disorders. And I, only get, I only get nostalgic for the boxes in the video stores that allowed people to go in and browse as if they were in a library. Yes. Now, now they have to just look at Netflix and say, what's that mean? Well, I have. It, it wouldn't be an episode if I didn't mention that I've got the the British Blu-ray of Mandy, which came in a mock VHS box. <laughs> he's never happy unless he's plugging Mandy every single episode. Um, how do we say I'm done? We good? Uh, well, we could. I guess we could segue into uh, into actually starting. So actually doing. A sh- it's weird. We don't normally wear headphones. Is it sounding weird? Yeah, Should I go? It get sounds weird. But if he says it's okay, it must be fine. Sounds okay to you. It sounds weird to me. It's all basic. You, you want me to get headphones as a sign of solidarity? No. No. no it would be better if I could take mine off and you wouldn't talk. Then I wouldn't. <laughs> That's the only problem is I can't hear you with that. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. This week, uh, our guest is Robert Kruskowski, the writer-director of absolutely fantastic and and unique uh, new film, The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot, uh, which I should also say is my favorite um, Sam Elliott movie of the past few years. It's, uh, uh, he's, it, it, it's a astonishing film because um, uh, it's it's not it's not the movie you'd expect. From and that it's, title, and it's his own double feature, and it's its own double feature. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of uh, elegiac meditation on on violence, on mythology, on on America, on war, um, on Bigfoot. Um, uh, just a, a wonderful film, and and thank you for uh, joining us, Robert. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you both for having me. Good to be here with you guys. Um, you have come here today to discuss with us a subject. Uh, that actually ties into your own film. Uh, I, you must it. agree. <laughs> I like to do that, Joe. I like to. Um, uh, do you want to tell Joe what your what your topic is? Yeah, I, I like thought it would be quiz show. To, <laughs> I, I thought it'd be fun to talk about American myth making, and uh, 
the movies that are that are made about America and Americans that uh, are done in in kind of a mythic way, or their function is to kind of add to the conversation of myth making in America. And I thought that might be a fun topic. So there's going to be some that are maybe big and a little obvious, and hopefully a few that are uh, interesting at least to talk about. And that's a huge subject. We could go pretty deep, but you guys can for many hours. That. Anything that that comes to mind, go for it. I, <laughs> as we're oh, yeah, talking. don't worry. By the time this is over, we will have gotten so far from the topic. It's, yeah, that's okay. our specialty. <laughs> Good. It's, All right, I like not. that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, do you want to just start walking us through? What's what's your first? Uh, do you want me to start at the at the bottom of the list? Or the, I, I like to say start with your least favorite favorite. My least favorite favorite. There's no <laughs> least favorite. Everyone says that. God, it's because it wouldn't be on the list if it wasn't a favorite. <laughs> start at the bottom. Work your way up. Okay, like I'm the rest gonna of us. start with. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a odd movie. It's it's not quite a movie. It's a trilogy. It's called the Beaver Trilogy. Uh, oh. It was made in 1979, 1981, and 1985 by Trent Harris. Have either of you guys seen that? Yes. Are they actually legitimately available? I felt like they were. Like I got them through the weird VHS bootleg community many years ago. That was pretty much it. I went to yeah. a, a kind of a cult video store that we had locally. It lasted about three years, and they had a section of really oddball stuff. And I, I saw that, and it stuck with me forever as a really interesting way to keep repeating the same story and building off of it. And and clearly, um, uh, Richard Levon Griffiths, who's who calls himself Groovin' Gary in the movie, um, he's a real guy. And Trent Harris was... I think just testing out a camera in a parking lot and this guy in Beaver, Utah kind of came up to him and was, was started doing impressions of, uh, Stallone and John Wayne. And they got talking about this talent show that this guy was going to do, um, in about a month. And so Trent Harris came back with his camera crew and documented it. Um, and the guy wanted to play, uh, on stage, he was going to do Olivia Newton-John singing "Please right. Don't Keep Me Waiting." Right, and and uh, at the end of that, you can't quite tell how the town reacts to it. I mean, he does it in full drag, and uh, there's just kind of this sense of unease as you're watching it that it was something that this guy Groove and Gary really needed to get out and needed to do. And Trent Harris was so fascinated with it, he remade it twice, once with Sean Penn and then again with Crispin, Crispin Glover. Glover, right. Yeah. I, and by the way, I was just looking to see, um, I haven't gotten very far in my search, if it's available commercial. Do you know these films? Yeah. Or these these films, these, these videos. But Beaver Trilogy Part 4 is available on iTunes and Prime Video. Oh, wow. I don't Who even know what that is. This time. I have no idea. Um, uh but yeah, that's right. So he recreates them, right, with with these actors. Yeah, yeah. He he recreates them and builds on them. So it's kind of taking this this small town guy and making him this local legend. And and uh, this idea of of him, he's clearly trying to pursue fame. And I understand that he was never very happy that the, this trilogy kind of came to be, and that it it kind of brought a lot of 
attention his way that maybe he wasn't looking for, even though clearly he was interested in being famous when it started out. And he's obviously this really sweet guy that cares about his community and is is uh, just excited to be in front of a camera. And I think it's an interesting exploration of what happens when you actually kind of get some level of that uh, notoriety that you might be looking for. So I thought that was a pretty oddball one, but it was one that was nagging at me to leave it off this list. I, I kind of had to do it. This yeah, idea no, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, of him repeating this theme over and over. And now I have to find out if they're commercially available. I, I may still even have my crappy old VHS somewhere, but um, it would be it would be fun to see those again. Check YouTube. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're on YouTube, right? Yeah, I know there's got to be some Groove and Gary clips on YouTube. So, <laughs> and it, they're fun to watch, and and and. That stuck with me a long time. So there's that one. Fantastic. Uh, let's go to 1939 for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, we're all over the place. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, is um, – it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about that the other day. Uh, someone recently pointed out it's probably the only time that a filibuster has actually been used for something good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, great film. What, what's, um, I mean, just this notion, especially right now of somebody standing alone, um, and all they've got is their integrity and they stand up against this incredible amount of power and corruption and all these influences. And he stays true to who he is and what he believes. in. it's, uh, uh, I believe it's a matter involving some land that he wanted for the boy scouts and he finds out that there's a bunch of corruption around it because some senators want it for uh, some big business. And uh, he stands his ground and almost loses everything in the process. And the movie is not all fun and games. There's something really, it's a Frank Capra movie, and it has uh, kind of a screwball comedy element to part of it. And then it gets real dark and heavy as this guy's world kind of collapses around him all of his idealism is is tested and i think that that's an interesting movie in today's conversation and it was certainly interesting at the time it was actually very controversial at the time people had a big problem with it in the uh, late 60s it, uh, yeah. it was it was revived and uh you know the counterculture was sort of programmed to think that frank capra movies were kind of just corny and and flag waving and all that and then when they get to the scene where the marching Boy Scouts are fire-hosed by the bad guys. <laughs> Everybody was shocked. I mean, they couldn't believe that in 1939 that that kind of an image would be allowed to be, you know, uh, popular. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it turned a lot of minds around, that picture. You know, it starts out as one kind of movie and then ends up as, you know, something somewhat slightly subversive. Yeah, subversive is a good term for it. Because watching it today, it feels every bit as relevant as it did then. In some ways, maybe even more so. Uh, for sure. I mean, I don't. You know, we we never get political on this show. Hardly ever. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought about it. I think the reason I was talking about it with a friend recently was watching um, uh, Ilan Omar, Omar, the congresswoman from Minnesota. Did you see her grilling Elliot Abrams? Yeah. Last yeah. week, which I have never in my life seen a sitting U.S. Congressperson do something that audacious well, and they courageous. just don't go there they don't but go that's, there that's the whole thing with this new wave of people is they, was, don't, they don't know what the rules are yet yeah and i thought <laughs> that that is the first time in my life i have seen someone do something that really made me think of jimmy stewart in, in that movie mm -hmm. um quavering voice 
stumbling over her written statement, this tiny diminutive woman standing up to this absolute monster in front of all these people and just violating all the all the norms that, that say you're not. Point of honor. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Yeah, I love that movie. I'm, um, Jimmy Stewart's so... Uh, when he's up there and he's quavering and he's just... He's, he's, I don't know, words are failing me right now. I apologize. Um, but yeah, his filibuster is incredible in that film. Yeah, he looks like he he's in agony uh, yeah. emotionally and physically, yeah. and yeah. he plays it so perfectly. I think one of the... Uh, an example of uh, emotion that's that real, there's a small moment in Captain Phillips when Tom Hanks has kind of a nervous breakdown at the end of the movie. Um, and it reminded me just of the level to which Jimmy Stewart was going in and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I think Tom Hanks, there's this, there's there's something something there when you can kind of make your whole body and your whole energy go to that that place. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it sticks with you forever. Cause you believe it. I think, I think there was some part of Jimmy Stewart that he was speaking some truth through that movie. So sure. Would that I'm Joe, I'm glad. Was that after his time at war? Yeah. Right. After his what? After his time at war. No, no, it was before. It was before. Yeah. Okay. Cause I know in, um, uh, uh, it's a wonderful life. He was sort of, well, when he, uh, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, see, well, when he came back from the war, he was, he was toughened up and he was darker and all that stuff. But no, he had, that stuff was all there. Uh, yeah. He, he didn't have that many roles that were allowed him to uh, tap into that. But it just, but, it reminds me of those sort of emotional scenes at the end of it's a wonderful life where he clearly was sort of tapping into some of his. Well, yeah. I mean the despair factor yeah. alone in that yeah. picture, but then, you know, I mean, vertigo and uh, Winchester 73. I mean, yeah. these are, these are dark, dark. characters. Yeah. Man from Laramie. Well, it's one, somebody said once, it's true. I mean, people always compare Tom Hanks to him. I mean, you, you just did. And I keep waiting for Tom Hanks to By have... By coincidence. <laughs> yeah, but, but just, I keep waiting for him to have that stage in his career where he starts going into those darker places. I, clearly, he can do it. I think it would be... Um, or do, Well, he's playing Mr. Rogers next, so you're going to get your wish. There, <laughs> he's, he's already played Walt Disney, so he's, he, doesn't, know, he doesn't seem to be going into too dark. He's got to. He's got to. He's got but he's to. so good. He's so good. And... Um, and it, it's worth saying that Sam Elliott, his acting heroes are uh, Gary Cooper and Jimmy Stewart. So he, he told me that when I first met him. And uh, I, well, I won't spoil. There's there's a, a movie coming up on the list, so I guess we'll we'll get into it later. <laughs> or you could just skip to it. <laughs> I could. Uh, okay. Well, you want me to skip to it? Sure. Why not? Let's talk about uh, High Noon from 1952. I knew you were uh, going to say High Noon. Yes. <laughs> which I, there's a very good book out uh, about the making of High Noon, uh, which it ties it in also with the political situation at the time. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I, I happened to catch High Noon again, which is one of my favorite movies on TV, and it's one of those pictures that I just stop and watch it because um, it's so well made. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, that took me back to the book, and it was really interesting about... Uh, you know the background of that picture and the, the 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 fights that went on between Stanley Kramer and Carl Foreman and um, and and the fact that Gary Cooper was uh, everybody thought he was miscast and uh, he was also very kind of ill during the movie. Wait, wait, sorry, they thought he was miscast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, thought, they thought he was too old. Well, okay, all right. And how, too old for Grace Kelly? Yeah, well, okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I just think that. It's it's it takes place in real time and it's a moral dilemma 
um, very, very simple. Do I stay or do I go? And what happens to everybody if I do this? What happens to my family? I, he, he just got married in the opening of the movie, and the movie's incredibly realistic. There's no, there's nothing cartoonish about the situation. Uh, as it goes on, you realize how alone he is, and that everyone's reasons for abandoning him are are kind of valid. Yeah, they're I legit. mean, they're all there's 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 a bit of cowardice there with a couple of the characters. And then there's some that just know this is completely futile and we can't help you. And I love that it's, I think 85 minutes and it just is this slow burn with no shootouts and no action until the last 10 minutes. And then it explodes. And I kind of feel like a movie like die hard tips its hat to a movie like high noon, except the action starts 20 minutes into die hard and never stops. Um, but High Noon's just a very cerebral, mythic movie. I was trying to think of what's kind of the most mythic Western. And I think this one says something about the type of people we aspire to be and uh, this this kind of American ideal that we look up to for better or worse. I think it's 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 kind of all there in High Noon. And, you know, interesting that the, the real-time aspect uh, was kind of imposed on it after a bad preview. Ah. Uh, and that there was oh, a really? sub, there was a subplot with two other characters, uh, another a different marshal who is bringing in a bad guy, and it it used to intercut between the two stories, and it, that just wasn't working at the preview. And when they brought in uh, Elmo Williams uh, to sort of rejigger it, the the idea came up: let's shoot lots of clocks, let's try, let's <laughs> make the whole thing happen in the time it takes to tell it. And uh, ah. of course, it's you know it's a masterpiece of editing that picture. Who's who's the other marshal? Uh, it was an actor named James Brown who ended up uh, as Lieutenant Rip Masters on the Rin Tin Tin television show. So it was obviously if it was a break he didn't get. <laughs> Joe gets annoyed when I say he's seen every movie and knows everything about them. That's true. I haven't. <laughs> I know some stuff. And what I've movie haven't more. you seen? Uh, I, I, until until a couple of days ago, I hadn't seen his. <laughs> <laughs> so he's seen everything. Uh, yeah, I just showed High Noon to my wife um, uh, God, a couple months ago. and Yeah, she she flipped for it. I mean, how do you not? How do you not? But Grace Kelly is such an amazing, you know, it's funny. As a kid, you know, obviously I key into Gary Cooper. Cause okay, and she's just the girl. She's just, but then, but yeah, yeah. When you're a 12-year-old boy, it's like, yeah. ah, ah. And, you know, as an adult, I'm watching, and it's like she is such the heart and soul of that movie. And she does so much acting. I mean, she's yes. all with her eyes. Yeah, she's she's amazing. Yeah, and in the in the end, when she actually helps him, picks up a gun and kills somebody, yeah. that would not work in in nine out of ten movies. It would feel it would feel like a a ploy or a cheap or a, yeah. a, a just convenient. There's something about the way they build that up and the look on her face, like Joe said, that that's just all in her eyes. Her yeah. having to do that says a lot. And and, and having been a Quaker and having lost some of her family to guns, and you know, it's it's a it's. The, the characters, it's, a, it's one of the best written movies that I can think of. Yeah. yeah, just saying to a friend the other day, I think of all the people on this list, the writer I'd want to talk to the most would be that one because they're, they're tapping into something so specific. It's really, it's a, it's a big, broad Western idea, and yet it's brought down to it, this incredible focus point. And uh, I, I just can't, I can't even think of a novella, but it was based on a, it was based on Tinstone. Yeah, short story. John Cunningham. Uh, so, yeah, it has a literary background, but sure is good. 
Have you ever read it, Joe? The short story? Yeah. Uh, I did read it around the time that I read the original script, which I had a copy of, which is how I knew about the uh, right. the, uh, the subplot. Um, and yeah, it's 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 not it's not actually that much like the movie. That that seems to be the case with especially that era. Yeah. Um, they usually take one or two elements and just go in an entirely different direction. But uh, what else do you have for us, Robert? All right, let's see. Uh, let's go to 2007, uh, and we'll do There Will Be Blood. It's inspired by an Upton Sinclair novel, Oil. Yes. And uh, I've read Oil, and it's, it, it only strings just the tiniest elements from it. I almost wonder if he, he put that on there sarcastically, but I'm sure it was inspired <laughs> by it. <laughs> um, but I think that the power and the greed and this kind of lonely singular character he speaks to a certain type of american ideal that that is to be avoided at all costs <laughs> um and paul thomas anderson somehow makes this entire movie and i don't think he preaches once there's a lot of preaching in the movie literally yes but it doesn't feel like a preachy movie um and i think that daniel day lewis's performance basically doing a spot-on impersonation of john houston for two and a half hours is <laughs> it's fascinating and it's this big larger than life almost captain ahab character who's just singularly possessed about oil and i think that that might be again a comment on on the times that the movie had come out in and then also it's timeless because it doesn't it doesn't seek to make a statement on any of that so i don't know what do you guys think of that call yeah, and I think he's he is a sort of quintessential American villain because he's so magnetic and you know people love quoting him in spite of the fact that you know because they like milkshakes. Yeah, yeah. I drink your milkshake. Um, I mean, how do you not? And and I think that's something that's sort of compelling uh, about a lot of American villains um, is that they are these sort of. Uh, wild characters, larger than life. I mean, I, I find myself, I grew up in Philadelphia under Mayor Frank Rizzo, one of the most egregious, racist monsters who ever lived. And I still find myself every now and then yearning for the days when we had politicians like that. <laughs> you know, it was just because he was at so, least so much simpler than big and audacious. And, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I enjoy that film. I'm, I'm always thrown by the, and I, is it a stupid thing to get hung up on the, the, the Paul Dano casting of the, or there's no mention made of the fact that he's playing two different people. Well, my, my understanding is that they had cast a different actor and had yeah. gone quite ways down the road with that. Yeah. And they just decided, okay, let's just, let's just have Paul Dano do it again. And, and the first time I saw it, it was super confusing. I, yes. I didn't, if Daniel was hallucinating or he'd lost his mind or, right. or he was just a, a strange gimmick or trick, but it, and I'm so used to it now. I just, I love it. I think it's a great call. I also think it's interesting that Paul Dano uh, plays Eli Sunday and his brother, Paul, and then Daniel day Lewis is playing Daniel Plainview. So both of these guys are using their real names on some <laughs> level. Of the movie. It had to be confusing, <laughs> but yeah, so it did, it, it works out for you because it really did throw me the first time. And, um, seemed to be such a strange thing to do. There was kind of a trilogy that came out that year in 2007 uh, that all kind of spiritually match each other with There Will Be Blood, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and No Country, no Country for, for Old Men. Men. Yes, um, <laughs> That was about as good a year for American myth-making as you can get. Um, 
and I'd love to talk about all three, but we just don't have time. Uh, but I wonder how jarring was uh, uh, the death of uh, Llewellyn in No Country for Old Men for you guys, the, the off-screen death. Did you guys have a hard time with that, or did you like it? Oh, well, joke. Well, what am I? I'm surprised. Do I have an opinion on this? No, I'm just afraid. <laughs> sure. Um, I think a lot of people had trouble with it uh, because it's so against the norm of what movies do, uh, which is to show you things happening. Uh, and considering the fact that there was a tremendous amount of uh, uncertainty as to what actually had taken place, um, that, that and then it's bookended by the, the last speech from Tommy Lee Jones, which mm -hmm. is really good. Um, I think a lot of people were just found it confusing. I, don't th I think they just didn't understand, well, why, why can't I see that? Whereas in real, in real life, of course, <laughs> very often you never see it. You I, don't see it. You know, I yeah. loved and I, it. And I think that's why they did it. I, yeah, I was just, I, I absolutely loved it. It was, um, I love that moment of realization that they had just bumped off what you thought was the main character off screen. Yeah. Um, there's that joy of, you know, watching someone do something new that works, that makes sense, that joy of feeling like, Wow, I'm like the, this must have been to some extent what it felt like to see Janet Leigh get killed in the shower. If you would see Psycho opening day, it was like you didn't see that coming either. Um, and then something about it's funny you mentioned John Sayles earlier, but that's why I'm thinking of it. But in some ways, it reminded me of the end of Limbo, which uh, is I think probably my favorite ending of a movie in which the entire audience around me is going "What the <laughs> fuck?" and I'm going "Oh." Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, that, that worked. That, I love that kind of thing in, in film. I have no problem with the with it, it being abrupt or being suggestive. Yeah. And I, I think that it, what it is is it's just how confident are the filmmakers in that move. And I think yes. that the Coen brothers at that point in their career, I mean, they started out basically pretty perfect. But at that point, they were just full-blown masters. And yeah. for them to make that move is a statement. that, And I think a really, really cool one that a lot of people hadn't seen before. So... I was it completely tripped me up when they first did it. I was for ten minutes. I'm like, Where is this character? Where did he go? I didn't. I didn't get it. And and <laughs> then realizing, like Joe said, or or you, one of you guys said about Tommy Lee Jones' speech at the end, and you kind of realize that not showing it leaves this vacuum in the movie that's really interesting. Um, and then it's one of the very few movies I can think of uh, where it's actually really rewarding that the bad guy wins somehow there's something about that movie where it, him winning is the right move for that movie even though he breaks his arm but yeah he does get all kind of messed up so <laughs> um no i i love that film to death i that that that's probably my second favorite coen brothers we were just talking about this the other day i'm a, a miller's crossing junkie of the highest order um but speaking of american myth but uh uh yeah uh it's amazing how much richer that movie gets every time I see it. Yeah, same. Well, that's the secret. And, and, of a, that's the secret of a good movie. Uh, you know, I mean, that's why we go back. You know, if, if you get if it's the same movie every time, yeah, then it kind of loses its luster. Yes. But it's like when I when I saw Eight and a Half, I was you know uh, thirteen years old, and I thought I thought one thing about it, and then I saw it when I was in my twenties, and I thought something else. Then I got into the movie business, and then I looked at it completely differently. And then I got older, and, I, and again, it's a different movie. I mean, those are the movies that really reward you when you keep coming back to them. Yeah. Yeah, same. It was also, did I tell this, have I told you the story before about the uh, big argument with Cronenberg and the villain scene? that uh, I, We had a scene in History of Violence with the two bad guys. 
um, come across a woman uh, whose car is broken down. You think, I mean, I'll just be very short. You think they're going to kill her. And the scene ends with the realization that they didn't. And is one of the few things that David and I really fought tooth and nail about. And he was like, why would I show this? What's the point? And I was like, it's to, it's to get across the, the, the mystery and the horror of these guys without them actually doing anything. And he was like, that's ridiculous. And then a year later, I'm watching No Country for Old Men. And one of the most terrifying scenes in that movie is the one where he doesn't kill the guy. I mean, it's just an amazing sequence with a point. <laughs> and it's your lucky day, friendo. <clears throat> um, I felt very vindicated by that. It's a great scene. And that's yeah. a great haircut also. Yes, yes, great haircut. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go to 1989 for Do the Right Thing. Uh, can we stay um, there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, written and directed by Spike Lee. Uh, Ernest Dickerson is the DP on that, who had shot Brother from Another Planet. Um, and I think that, I don't I I couldn't find it in the interviews or any any research I was doing but I think that he was trying to make something mythic in in making this movie. I mean the, having the 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 mayor and mother sister feel almost like a king and a queen that kind of preside over all of the goings goings on of this day and then having the element of it being the hottest day of the year sure. so it's putting more pressure on the situation. Uh, people speak in soliloquies. Uh, I feel like uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character is almost like the Greek the chorus, Greek chorus or yeah. certainly yep. the guys that are against the big red wall, yep. um, kind of commenting on everything that's happening around them in almost a kind of sarcastic, uh, in aloof way. Um, Radio Rahim just wandering in and out of scenes with his one song. and Constantly playing uh, Public Enemy. The yeah. <laughs> fight the power over and over again. I don't know. I love that movie. Uh, and it felt right for this conversation. So I don't know. Again, I'll, what do you guys think? No, it's, it's a, that's a mythic movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a masterpiece. And, um, um, yeah, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't say enough about that one. Um, it was jaw dropping. I remember seeing, it's one of those movies where I remember everything about where I saw it and who I saw it with and, what are we I'll bet you don't remember that about driving Miss Daisy. Uh, was that? Yeah, that's right. That of course, it was the same year. That was yeah, the year that won. His Oscar. I'm, I'm <laughs> blanking that out traumatically. There's a, a, a lovely little movie. Shit. I'm blanking on the title. Um, yeah, he'll add up, add it up the part where he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Southside <laughs> with you. God damn it. Um, there's a movie that came out a couple years ago um, about Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's first date. Oh yeah, I remember. And um, it's a it's a sweet film, but there's an amazing scene at the end. Have you seen it? Mm -mm. A, I told you, <laughs> and not I. <laughs> wow, I can't see everything. Um, where uh, she doesn't want the people they work with to see them dating because she's just gotten this job and she thinks it'll diminish her standing with them. It's that era. She's a woman, etc. They walk out of the movie and their first date was do the right thing. And they run into the white boss at the law firm she works at. And they're talking about the end of the movie. And um, uh, her her boss sees them and comes over. And uh, he says, so I, I, I liked it. I, go, I didn't really like the ending, though. What, what do you think the ending was, was about? And Barack goes, well, uh, he saw that these people were in danger. And um, he knew that the only way to save them was to throw the trash can through the window to deflect the attention away from them. So he saved his friend's life by doing this other thing because he understood the crowd. 
And the guy goes, oh, oh, that makes sense. Oh, great. And he walks away and Michelle turns to him. And she goes, is that what you think happened? And he goes, no, he was fucking angry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was just such a beautiful use of that film to sort of highlight something interesting about Obama and, and the culture and everything else. But um, yeah, that ending is one that, you know, you can't help but talk about even 20, 30 years later. Yeah. And I like that the discussion around it is always that the ending is kind of ambiguous Yeah, uh, and it's a mirror for the audience. What you see in that ending is says something about you. And, yeah. and then the conflicting quotes at the end, one of them yeah. saying that violence can sometimes be necessary and that you never resort to violence. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, 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 it's just as good as it gets. So it, I love it that. really is. I also love that apparently Spike went to Chuck D and said, I need you to write the greatest rap anthem ever. And Chuck D came back a few days later with fight the power. Oh, wow. I mean, that's... Well, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No problem. <laughs> that's pretty great. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host nerd wallets, smart money podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, all right. Uh, let's go to 1941. And talk about Sullivan's Travels. Ah, Sullivan's Travels. One of the great movies about making movies. Yes. <laughs> I had to have one about making movies because that's a mythic aspect of the American culture. And sure. then also it's about, um, you know, this period in time where people were so incredibly depressed and impoverished. And uh, it's a great screwball comedy and a great social commentary. And it does it all without... Uh, again, without preaching too much, it's just, it just works for the movie. Um, I don't know, Joe, you want to, you, you could probably run down the synopsis better than I could. Well, you know, it's, uh, Joel McRae as a, uh, movie director who's been very successful making comedies with, like, with titles like Ants in Your Plants of 1939. Uh, <laughs> and he, uh, he, he feels that there, he, he needs to, to say something about the world we live in, which is. You know, uh, there's a lot of homelessness. There's a lot of it's 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 it, it's made in 1940, but I think it's it almost looks like it was set about three years earlier because yeah. the depression is at right. its height. And there's yeah. a hobo jungle. And uh, anyway, he decides that in order to um, he can't make his magnum opus without suffering, and so <laughs> he has to go and disguise himself as one of the the people and go out and, and feel miserable and learn about their misery in order to be able to make this, this uh, film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which is, is the movie he wants to make about, about social problems. And uh, all of his friends try to talk him out of it. And uh, they, they, follow him, they follow him around. And they the follow night. him around in, a, in an Airstream trailer. 
<laughs> so that he will, he'll be able to have, you know, be able to eat and take a shower and all that kind of stuff. And he, he really doesn't want to do that. So he meets this girl played by Veronica Lake, and she's kind of down on her luck. And anyway, he ends up going out on his own, uh, and he gets in trouble. And he ends up at a chain gang. And the uh, uh, it, when he's at his lowest moment of despair, uh, he goes to a black church where they're running cartoons for the uh, the prisoners. The prisoners come in and the, the, the parishioners move back a couple of rows and the prisoners come and they run a Mickey Mouse cartoon, a Pluto cartoon with, with no, it's, it's just music, no, there's no effects. And uh, everybody starts laughing and, and Joel McRae, who was pretty down, also starts to laugh and he starts to realize how funny it is and how wonderful it is to be surrounded by people who, no matter how miserable they are, have found this moment of levity uh, watching this silly cartoon, and it changes his whole view about uh, about making those kind of movies. And maybe it's okay to make comedies because they do uplift people. And it's a much better movie than that synopsis. But um, it, it, and pretty it's, good synopsis. It's filled with great characters and uh, the Preston Sturgis stock company of people. Um, and it's it's uh, it's 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 a it's remarkable just, movie. It's just so well written. There's this great little device. The studio hides a. Uh, card in his shoes in case anything happens to him they'll they'll have this this card that identifies him and this homeless guy steals his shoes and and gets hit by a train and they think he's dead and was murdered uh and it's such a clever device at the end he admits to murdering himself so that he can get on the newspaper get on the front page of the newspaper so somebody can come find him because he's so lost in the, the the jungle of homelessness it's and uh, and then he won't make the movie. Oh, brother, where art thou? When all said and done, he 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 said he's it was it was too real and too raw, and I can't I can't make that movie now, which disappoints all of the guys that initially didn't want him to go on this adventure because now they're fully bought into it. Uh, it it's it's so good, and it's a it's a big mythic American movie, and it talks a lot about um, how we treat one another and our uh, our privilege. And this this wealthy guy, assuming he can go learn something uh, in relative comfort, and then having all that stripped from him is is it's it's interesting. It's a it's a good it's a good movie. It's great. Yeah, I was struggling a bit with uh, everything else. As soon as you said it, I uh, sort of grasped the mythic nature of um, Sullivan's Travels. Doesn't leap to mind as a mythic film for me, but. Well, it's. I think it, I, it, the movies he's making are myths. Yeah. he's giving the myths to the public, right. and and he's now he's now he's living the things that he's been only creating in a, in a false way, and that's why at the end of the picture he says the reason he can't make the movie is because he hasn't suffered enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you wanted a more mythic one, I you know, in in place of this one was going to talk about it's a wonderful life, but we've we've we know that movie. Everybody. Yeah. And, and I love it, and it's great, but um, I felt like Sull Sullivan's Travels says as much, just in a different direction. Yeah, yeah and it's not as well-known as it should be. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm going to move to uh, 1987, uh, a movie called Mate One, oh. written and directed by John Sayles. Uh, this movie and Raiders of the Lost Ark were the two movies that made me want to make movies. <laughs> Raiders, because it just looked like so much fun to get to make a movie. And then mate one, I saw it as a, at a young age and realized that this is what you can do with movies. You can say something 
without preaching and it can still be incredibly entertaining. Um, and I, I've never really stopped thinking about this movie and I wish more filmmakers from my generation would, would look at and study this movie because I think it's as important and as meaningful as a movie like the Godfather. So yes, I, it's hard to find. There is a, I think you can get it on iTunes or something, but um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I've well, even, it. even when it was new, it didn't get great distribution uh, as, as often many of John's films didn't. Well, I, I asked him when I got to that great Q and a with him a couple of years ago about specifically like when the hell do we get a Blu-ray of this thing? And I guess the, the rights are all so scattered. Well, when you, when you have, when you make independent pictures with multiple yeah. sources of, in, of finance it, it sometimes gets very complicated it's it's a glorious film it's funny i how many movies have you brought up that uh uh are not preachy and yet have preachers in them <laughs> john <laughs> plays the hard show yes yeah. especially your evangelical side by the way i i got to ask him i don't know if you've had, i asked him once why does he um he always cast himself as assholes and <laughs> and he said it's because um uh you know he saves money putting himself in the films and it's hard enough directing the thing without having to think about where your character is on his journey. But assholes are always assholes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did, where did you meet John? Uh, John and I were developing uh, just briefly a, a, a project. I mean, he, he and the composer, Joe Kramer, and myself, we were all born about 15 minutes from each other. I was born in Albany, John in Schenectady, and and Joe was raised in, in the Albany area. So we all kind of came from the same neck of the woods and john uh was was working on a, a movie about the uh, rosenberg trial that uh, i had read and had an opportunity to potentially produce and it didn't end up working out but john and i stayed in touch for for years and he read the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot and my comic elsie hooper and i think was just just really encouraging and we talked a lot about movies and and he wound up coming on board the short film of Elsie Hooper and then ultimately Hitler and Bigfoot as executive producer on those shepherding the project and and helping me make sure that I didn't hit some of the rocks along the way that that you can hit when you're trying to make an ambitious independent film and uh the movie wouldn't exist if it weren't for him so it's really strange that it came back around that I'll get to work with him because I, I tell you the truth. You can ask anybody who knows me. Mate one was, was a movie I was completely obsessed with growing up. So oh, I, I believe you. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal film. Um, uh, yeah, I, I probably watch I'll, it I'll, every couple I'll, of years. Yeah. I mean, it's about, I should say it's about, yeah, let's the, talk about it. Sure. It's a coal miners revolution in the 1920s and it's in West Virginia. It's a town called mate one and there's a labor union dispute and it erupts into violence in the town. And why I think this movie is mythic is because what John wisely does is he taps into what we love about Westerns. I yes. mean, the end of the movie is a full-blown Western shootout. And you've been waiting, this powder keg is building and building and the tension. Um, and it's just an incredible cast of characters. Chris Cooper as Joe Kenahan and James Earl Jones as Few Close Johnson and David Strathairn, film, the, the, the dual gun-wielding yes. uh, did Hatfield? Uh, do you guys know? Is he supposed to be related to the Hatfields and the McCoys? Yeah, or is that... yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, okay, that's right. Yeah. Who's for whose first film? Uh, Chris Cooper's. Oh, because I, I had never seen him before. And and you're right. And the great thing about the Strather character is he is there because Chris Cooper is very much not a Western hero. 
Um, but but uh, every now and then when you need that little bit of grit, David Strathern shows up and says, you know, whatever, it's like, I wouldn't piss on him if his heart was on fire. <laughs> he's just, he's such a badass in that movie. It's, yeah, it's, and, and, I, and is he, I mean, he's the first realistic character in a movie that, that wields two guns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I, I love that movie. I love that it's, it kind of has a secret narrator. You're wondering who's the narrator of this movie the whole time. And it, and it goes right back to the, the kid who is in Mary McDonald's house the whole time. It's Will Oldham, um, playing Danny. And, uh, he was kind of observing all of these events and he was a young preacher in the town and, uh, had very different opinion of the John Sayles preacher and uh of what was happening in his town and and it speaks to their their grit and their tenacity and the 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 right to work the notion that these people just wanted a fair wage and the the people who owned the mines were renting them their equipment um and were renting them their houses and owned everything that they uh were basically their their entire job was owned by the the overlords and their life and and so they break away from that i don't think john is at all saying that violence is the 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 way to break free from it but in this movie that's that's what had to happen it's also got i mean there's just we do a whole show on just mate one um the performance of james earl jones in just the one scene where he We'll give to it where he he finds out he doesn't have to kill someone he thought he was going to have to. Oh, it's say. beautiful. Oh my yeah. god, I just I, I, I get teary eyed just thinking about it. He's so good. And he's yeah. always good, but he's so good in that movie. I think I mean I I truly think that that's my favorite James Earl Jones part. He's just so good, and him and 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 all these guys come in on a train, um, and they're considered scabs, and it ends up that. Uh, these laborers, um, uh, all of the people in West Virginia, and then uh, the Italians that uh, were living there as well, they all band together in kind of this camp outside of the town uh, to, sort of- to make this work. And, and Chris Cooper goes around the area kind of rallying the troops to create a union. And it shows it's a great school lesson of how yeah. basically a union gets put together. And again, it's all just people trying to fight for a fair wage and, and not become a new generation of slaves. Yeah. A, a beautiful film. All right. Let's go to 1978 and talk about Superman. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Why don't is get it? <laughs> well, That's not mythic. Nothing mythic. <laughs> Terrible. We're going to cut this part. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, Josh, you can, you can begin on this one and I'll jump in. Uh, <laughs> you, you can at least run through what Superman is if you want to. Oh, I, I think people know Superman. I, I think, I think we've had enough or <laughs> enough origin movies for the rest of our lives. <laughs> I, I remember, you know, I was a kid when that came out and it was, it was, um, I gotta say, I've always said, cause my, my father dragged me off to see, you know, there weren't that many movies for kids when I was a kid, which I think is a good thing. Um, so I was, you know, we'd go off to Altman movies and, Every now and then something like Superman would come along and it was such a thrill. But if you had told me back then that someday I could live in a world in which everything was Superman and <laughs> every now and then you get an Altman film, I'd say, I think I'll stay here. Uh, but, oh, yeah, no, it was it was revelatory um, to, yeah, you know, I believed a man could fly. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I mean, we we couldn't afford a VCR when we were kids, my family. So we would rent a VCR, and pretty much every time we went, we'd rent Superman <laughs> with a couple other things. But we just we loved that movie so much, and and I think in this conversation of American Mythics, um, I mean that one's almost the top of the list in some ways. It, it's it's had a gigantic cultural impact. This movie which was directed by Richard Donner, kind of started this whole superhero craze, ma- taking it seriously and, and making it work. And I still think his work's better, if not the best of all of them, barring maybe The Dark Knight. Um, but Superman is just a really amazing way to go about making these movies. And I think that something that's worth noting is that at some point it's going to feel like a a rebellion or a complete revelation when somebody makes a superhero movie that celebrates the joy of being a hero and not the weight that you carry the pain of being a hero. That's, that's the, that's the Marvel contribution, you know, the, the, the the neurotic, that that was supposed to be a, a, a wonderful change from the standard superhero thing. It was. These people are they're, they're they're neurotic. They've got problems. I mean, if you if you were a super person, you'd have a lot of problems too. And okay, I get it, you know. But now <laughs> I've been getting it for the past five, ten, twelve years of just the same thing, the same beats over and over and over. Whereas yeah. when you go back to the Donner Superman, you're right. I mean, there's a sense of joyousness to it. I mean, it's like this is this is a this is a fun idea. Uh, it's got the whole Jor-El thing, and uh, it's also got the longest credits in the history of movies. Uh, which, and they're fun to look at. <laughs> yeah, credits are great. Um, and, and it's and it's really well cast. Um, and uh, you know, it's 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 a, it became a model, I think, for those pictures. And and I think that it does get a little campier with the Gene Hackman Ned Beatty stuff than the rest of the movie is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but um, even so, it's still uh, you know it, it's when you compare it to Superman two, which is a, a hybrid of what Donner shot and what Richard Lester came in and reshot, um, and then you get into three and four. Uh, there's no doubt about it that the first one is the best one. Yeah, and and there's a really great if you can find it. There's a Blu-ray that has the television version of the movie. It's three hours long. So I've been and sitting on it for a while. Is it good? Is it worth it? Is, it is the absolute best way to see oh, that. Oh, really? <laughs> it is so good. It's so good. And and I don't know if Richard Donner likes it that way, but it just it dives in a little deeper on some really beautiful character stuff. Uh, the sequence in space with kind of all of those what look like Douglas Trumbull visual effects as he's moving through space is a much longer sequence. I mean, it's a kind of a hallucinatory version of the movie. It's just so much bigger and so much more little character asides and moments. There's nothing in it that I would, that I would necessarily cut. I love that there's a shorter version, but the long one is my favorite one to watch. And it looks incredible. Whoever mastered that version, it looks so good. And did they put the sex scene back in? Or? Uh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> <laughs> no, was it was it Chevy Chase who uh, told Margot Kidder that there should be a sex scene in the movie? And it sounds like something he might say behind closed doors, and it'd just be her going, "Oh, Superman! Oh, super, super duper man!" <laughs> anyway, terrible, terrible bit. Um, <laughs> wait, so is that your most mythic film? Is that the no, no? We, oh. We're still we're still creeping towards the yeah. We're we're get a couple left. Um. But yeah, I mean that—that's about. I mean, there's not a whole lot that needs to be said about about why that movie is what it is. But it it it, it 
it had to be on this list. I couldn't just ignore it. Yeah. And and I might as well list some of the ones right now that we're not covering that people a lot smarter than me uh, would be great at talking about, like you guys. Um, but we're not going to get to talk about Easy Rider or The Godfather or Rocky or American Graffiti or Lincoln or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or Nashville or Taxi Driver. Uh, and I'm sure I'm missing some and hopefully it'll get people talking about what very specifically these kind of movies can do. Because actually, when I looked at hundreds of movies, it, it really was only about 20 or 30 movies really kind of fit the bill here. Um, so, all right, let's go to uh, 1984, uh, The Natural. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's a Barry Levinson film uh, shot by Caleb Dashnell. Uh, based on one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book, uh, The Natural by Bernard Malamud. Um, Have you noticed that every DP he's mentioned has already been on our show? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah right. we've had Caleb and Ernest. Oh, wow. Okay, well, i got to go back and listen now. Um, oh, now he has to. <laughs> I'll, I'll cover some of the reasons it's mythic. I mean, literally, it's based on the Arthur legend. Um, it has the sense of magical realism. It has the Holy Grail, which is the pennant. That's right. what Pop Fisher is looking for. It's, that's his Holy Grail. Um, Pop Fisher is named after the Fisher King from Arthur Lore. Um, Roy's Excalibur is Wonder Boy. It's a bat forged from lightning. Um, he plays for the Knights, which is a little on the nose. But <laughs> <laughs> um, there's almost a Morgana character in the mysterious oh, uh, yeah, the, Bird yes, character that yes. shoots him. Um, Roy and Hobbes come from the Latin words, which mean king and horse. So again, very on the nose, but, uh, there's a scene in the movie where he performs a coin trick at the, at the table with Kim Basinger. Um, well, uh, Robert Duvall, no, it's, uh, uh, one of the, I think the owners of the team is watching and he kind of humbles him by, by doing this magic trick. But in the book, he literally does completely impossible magic i think he pulls a pig out from under the table something completely <laughs> insane that's completely it's just not possible um so the book is willing to kind of go there and then in the in the end he uh he fails and will be forgotten in the book he right. he he basically agrees to cheat and uh throw the game and then at the end of the game he decides no i want to win i want to do this right but it's too late he's he's already given up too much and the picture that he stands against is too good and it kind of is like that say it ain't so joe line i think a kid comes up to him and says say it ain't, ain't so roy um so the book and the movie are very different but they're both mythic in the in very much the same ways um just the the movie ends with basically uh, the Arthur legend having a happy ending and the Holy Grail is is captured. Am, am I wrong? I vaguely remember. Did, did they do a ending more faithful to the book originally? Uh, was it a reshoot? I don't think so. Okay. I somehow it's, my recollection is very vague. But yeah, great, great movie. And yes, I I, I haven't seen it in a long time and I'm, I don't remember catching all that painfully obvious stuff you're pointing <laughs> out, but I'm, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. <laughs> well, you were much younger. At the That's time. true. That's true. Yeah, I didn't catch it when I was a little kid. I think the only thing I caught when I was little was the the bat kind of the reminded bat, yes, of, sure. of a magical yeah. totem that he has with him. 
and and then and then I think the Knights thing I realized some years later, and then I read the book, and and it started to become really clear that there was there was a lot of connections there, yeah. and I mean the photography in that movie, I think it's maybe my maybe the best looking movie I've ever seen. It's pretty darn close. I mean I, I love the the look of that movie, um, especially the sequence where. Uh, Robert Duvall and all of them are kind of placing bets on uh, them having a batting and pitching contest uh, in the sunset. I mean, I, I don't know how many days they would have had to shoot that sequence at sunset, but it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Do you know anything about that, Joe, how any of that worked? Well, Magic Hour stuff is so complicated. You know, I, I, I see movies that have these beautiful scenes that take place in Magic Hour, and I go... Well, it's going to all be one shot, right? Because the sun is setting, <laughs> and then no, there's another angle, and there's another angle, and, another, and you figure it's got to it's got to be more than one day. You've got to go yeah. back to that location. Yeah, I've never really, I've never looked into how they did it, but it, there's a lot of coverage in that sequence, and it just maintains this really gorgeous light throughout. And in the, the whole movie, well, next time you have Caleb Deshnal yeah. on, you can ask him yeah. how he put it off. <laughs> so I think we'll close this list with my favorite from this list. Um, is in 1979 is being there by oh, how I, oh god sublime yes speaking of caleb yeah yeah <laughs> yeah there he is <laughs> so he's the guy to go to for mythic american films yeah when i read that when i read the book uh before i saw the movie uh which it's a, it's a good book but it's very short and i i was just sort of racking my brain thinking how are they going to make a feature film out of this somewhat slight little paperback mm. and uh i was so impressed when i saw the movie how they managed to uh expand it into again something mythic yeah yeah i mean it, it's it's a movie that when i first saw it it was just an, an instantaneous feeling of that's that's maybe the best movie i've ever seen i, I i've consistently gone back to Raiders and the conversation and being there, I can't decide which one is my favorite movie, but th this movie I just love so much and has such a good, sweet message. Um, and it's just this this simple, decent character who's alone in the world and, and was good at one task very singularly. And he's a gardener for uh, an older man who passes away. And it, apparently there were no windows to the outside world. And, and he just kind of stayed in this house until he's, I don't know, how old was Peter Sellers when this It was one came? of his last movies. In fact, yeah. wasn't it the last one? I think it was. Well, it was, we all like to say it was his last movie. Well, his I think last movie was the movie. plot of Yeah, Fu I think the Fu Manchu movie was yeah. his last movie. But um, uh, he, was, he was up there, you know. But it, he's, uh, uh, you know, he was obviously a very problematic person. But uh, obviously a great talent, and this is an uh, amazing performance. Yeah, I mean, he, he finally fifty-four when he died. Yeah, he what? He 54. was fifty-four when he oh, died. Wow. Okay. Jesus Christ! So yeah. he gets of the house, and because it gets it, it it's basically goes into foreclosure. It's going to get bought uh, after his the, the guy he works for dies, and he goes out into the world and bumbles his way into uh basically the presidency by the end of the movie everybody at the presidency <laughs> it can happen <laughs> <laughs> the other I mean, the, at the end of the movie these guys are standing in front of a very obvious illuminati type symbol it's this pyramid with an eye on it 
which they're bringing the the his friend uh, Melvin Douglas, who plays Ben Rand, um, and talking about who could maybe be president next. And you hear all these voices kind of quietly discussing that maybe it should be Chauncey Gardner, this guy who's uh, just worked his way up through the political scene in Washington. And the shot that ends the movie is him literally walking on water, which in any other movie would seem preposterous or offensive or stupid or whatever it might yeah. be. But for this movie, it's it's just the perfect. perfect. And, 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 the, and, the, and the key to Chauncey Gardner is the fact that he has only watched television. Right. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't know what's going on in the outside world and he thinks everything that he sees on TV is real. And he has a remote <laughs> that he brings with him. And uh, when he, in his first sojourn outside the, the, the house, he runs into these street kids and they start razzing him. And he holds up the remote and keeps pushing it as if, if he pushes it, it'll, the channel will change. It's phenomenal. And, and, then, and, and he, he can't make love to Shirley MacLaine because he's too busy watching television. Are you hearing uh, yourself? I know. Who do you think but it sounds Jesus like? Christ. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I mean, we all do face in the crowd and network and all that stuff, but my God. No, man. well, it's being there. We are now there. Is it <laughs> mythic if it turns out to just be true? <laughs> it's prophetic, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, think that, I think that it's worth noting, too, that Forrest Gump, I think, owes a big debt to, <laughs> to being there. Yes, it, it, it does, but it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not fit to lick its boots. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean... Some other things that I like about the movie are just just it, it has a real sense of decency and and honesty, but it does it in a way that is very very subtle and, and like Joe said, it's sublime. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a perfect movie. So um, yeah, that's that's my collection of movies that that touch on American myth making. That's a good bunch of stuff. It is fantastic, and I can I can see a lot of I can I can see and feel the connection to your own film, which is nice. Um, those films clearly sort of channel through you while you're making that. And you know, in the in today's world, your uh, your your swastika wristwatch, I think, could really be, it could take off. Yes, <laughs> I I hope not. I, somebody asked me, did you think this movie would be relevant when you wrote it? Because I wrote it 12 years ago, and I said this movie was never supposed to be relevant. <laughs> um, well, I highly recommend it uh, for folks who are listening who have not seen it. Um, it's all over now, right? It's on like uh, the iTunes and the, the various and sundry Amazon Prime. Amazon, Amazon. Prime. Am I correct? Yeah. 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 As we as we speak, it's uh, playing in select theaters. And, oh yes. And you can go you can go see it if you can find it near you. And uh, and, and you can have that Sullivan's Travels uh, effect of actually watching a movie with people around you, which is a different experience than watching it on your screen at home. Crazy talk. Crazy talk. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Uh, well, Robert, thank you. Thank you so very, very much for uh, coming on and talking to us. It's been a blast. Um, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Joe. And good luck. And good luck with your future work. Thank you both very much. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. The official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.